You are listening to Hope Fellowship Church of Jaffrey, New Hampshire. If you would like to check out more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit hfcnh.org. So like I said, this is Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. You're welcome to turn there if you have a Bible. Um, we will kind of be walking through, especially the first several verses, and we're going to be picking it apart a little bit. But as to begin... Um, I want to just kind of begin with some broader concepts, and I, I guess like I did last week, I was saying, you know, let's think this through, and so this week will be another thinking message, not that we always never think, I'm, I'm not, not doing that here, I'm saying that this message is, is going to be in a sense, it's, it, it'll definitely be building on one another. I think in the beginning, we might struggle to find out how all this relates but I think if you stick with me, okay, so I'm trying to buy your, your gain here. If you stick with me, I think at the end, God is gonna really tie this all together with his reconciliation and the redemption. But I think we need to understand what Paul is doing in this passage and why this is such an important passage. I would say it's probably one of the top five most important passages in all of the New Testament. It is central and it is constantly being attacked by a variety of sources to try to detract and distort the meaning of this passage. And so I think it's so important. And last night I was laboring over this passage and trying to figure out how to gather my thoughts and how to say what I'm gonna say. In fact, my, I was in my little study, it's this little, literally, closet that I study in, in off the side of our, our, our room and uh, my girls were going to bed. Uh, my wife was uh, faithfully going about trying to get these little crazy uh, crazies into bed and uh, my two girls come running in and my, my daughter says, well, what are you doing? And I said, well, honey, I am trying to figure out what to say tomorrow, you know, and she actually said, well, mom said you would probably say that, you know, and so I, I replied, well, you know, and then literally I, I was talking to Char, and she, she said, um, well, what do you think he wants you to say? And I thought that was, that was kind of nice, like, well, actually, when you say it that way, it doesn't sound like this is too difficult, is it, you know, and uh, I said, well, you know, honey, I think he wants me to talk about Jesus, you know, I was trying to be a very simplified thing, you know? And she laughed, because she said, well, duh, we're always supposed to talk about Jesus. She's a pastor's kid, knows all the Sunday school answers, right? You know, you got a question to the test, the Sunday school test, Jesus, 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 right? And I said, you know what, uh, you're right, but, but why is it, honey, right? Why should we talk about Jesus? And she thought and paused for a moment, and she said, well, because he made everything and he wants us to be kind. And I said, that was rather profound, right? And I wrote it down and I said, I should probably start with that tomorrow morning. And then she gave me a hug and ran into bed. But I found through the mouth of babes, right, isn't it? <clears throat> a five-year-old, he made everything and he wants us to be kind. That's a very astute, wise way to summarize, I think, a lot of what we're gonna be saying today. I think the Apostle Paul and my daughter, Char, uh, had very similar uh, theology, right? The, the fact is that Jesus made everything. It says that, that's what we're gonna be looking at today. And ultimately, because of his great re reconciliation and redemption, he desires for us to be kind to one another. I think it's a very simple way of putting it, but a very important way of putting it. 
The fact that Paul is going to simply be bringing a focal point for all of creation for us today. He is going to be in his best attempt simplifying everything, but in very many ways, really just making everything massively large and to the point where it's almost hard to grasp the things that Paul says in this passage. That is, he says, Jesus made everything, all the visible and the invisible. Visible things and invisible things. All things. Passage or the, the theme of this week, the theme of the whole passage, uh, the, the theme of this, this whole series is Colossians, that Jesus is the center of all things. He's the center of all things. That is really, Jesus is the core he, you could say he's the core pursuit of life. And really you could say people from the beginning of time have been asking these questions. What is the central purpose of life? Why am I here? Uh, what is the nature of the afterlife? If we were to distill everything down, how did everything begin? Who began all of this? Where did I begin? Like I said, people have been asking these questions for millennia and men like great philosophers, men like Aristotle, uh, have been asking these kinds of questions, the great philosophers, and he himself broke down the study of these philosophical concepts into three main categories. Aristotle divided these sciences, or the study of these questions, the great grand questions of life, into three things. He said they could be divided into the study of physics, and the study of mathematics, and the study of theology. Those are his three main divisions. And then as history has gone on, we've taken physics and we've broken into it a, a study or a discipline of study of physics called the study of metaphysics. Are you familiar with that? Have you ever heard of that? Metaphysics. Metaphysics is a division of philosophy that is concerned with the fundamental nature of reality and being. It includes studies of ontology, or the study of being, the study of cosmology, the study of things that are in the universe, this great, and, and the study of epistemology, big words to basically describe how we know what it is we know. How is it that you know? K-N-O-W. <laughs> Metaphysics uh, are, are kind of these abstract philosophical ideas that sometimes hurt our brains, right? A study of what is outside our objective, visible experience. So often we only want to see what's right in front of our face and that's all it is, like we studied in Sunday school with my ninth graders today. Thomas, I want to see Jesus. I want to touch his hands and I want to put my hands in his side and that, if I don't see that, I won't believe, right? But what about those who, Jesus says, those who have not seen and yet still believe? Those, the invisible and the invisible. And we encounter questions about our beginning. Who started this? Where is all the beginning? For none of us were there at the beginning. And scientists have been studying and trying to understand and describe the beginning of the cosmos and the study of all these things. And this idea of the study of the visible and the invisible uh, was brought up in a conversation to me a few weeks ago when we were talking about this passage and somebody had mentioned this concept of what is known to scientists and the scientific world and the astronomers known as dark matter. Have you ever heard of dark matter? 
and uh, maybe none of you are uh, astronomers or, uh, or geeks like I am or nerds, but you start looking up some of these things and you're like, you go into these wormholes of the internet that are just like, what, you know, blowing your mind, right? And so really, if you look at everything in this world, we see matter. Matter is the physical aspects that we encounter in life, and if you were to take a microscope, you would see matter at its finest points, and you could dive down into matter. And if you take a telescope and you see the matter that's far away, the celestial bodies that are rotating and revolving around the earth and, and the sun and, and, and all the universes, and all, we look at matter. But incredibly, as astronomers have been studying for the last 100 or 150 years, they've been starting to encounter something that they cannot explain. In fact, incredibly recently, they, they believe that ultimately 90% of matter in the universe is invisible. They call it dark matter. In fact, nobody really knows what it is. 90% of the universe's mass is invisible, then what exactly is it? And what exactly holds up that mass that is a being and kind of holding things together? And so in reality, dark matter, I, I believe with all its mystery, is an undeniable aspect of God's creation and it showcases the creator's glory. I can't explain it for you. If I could explain what dark matter was, I'd have a Nobel Prize, right? You know? But the idea is that there is something out there that science cannot explain. There are these forces in which that, if we were to go into the subatomic particles, there's a thing recently, that I think in the last 100 years or so, that they described as the God particle. Maybe you've heard of that too. The, the, the subatomic levels of electrons and neutrons and photons and, and what makes up them? What, what makes up a, a, a neutron's a mass? What, if you were to get a microscope and figure out what's inside of that, then what's inside of that, then what's inside of that? And they found this subatomic particle in which they try to describe as a God particle, the particle, the thing that is beneath the thing, you could say. And I know this is all very complicated and it hurts our brain and I think that's the point of this illustration, to get us to think through things that are very large and very big. But the fact is that the Apostle Paul, 2,000 years ago when he's writing this or so, the Apostle Paul and other writers and authors of the New Testament wrote about these very things things of physics, and mathematics, and theology, and ties them into the scripture, and no, they didn't know about dark matter or these particles or electrons or neutrons, but what they did know is that God was there in the beginning before it all. And what we learn is that God has been, God has always been, and he always will be. He is the alpha and the omega. And in specifically, as the New Testament reveals to us, not only God, Yahweh, has always been, but now, as we learn, as it has been revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ, that Jesus, the Son of God, is from the beginning. <laughs> the start of all things in motion is from him. The sum of all things put together. He is the purpose and the goal of all things that exist. He is the active force which holds all things together. We learn that this central thing is none other than a thing. It is a person. It is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And I want to read for you just a couple of passages. And I know I, I have a, I, I, sometimes when I just read different passages in the scripture, our minds have a tendency to wander. So let's focus on this because I believe you'll see them tie together. We're gonna look at the passage I'm just reading is one verse here in Colossians. It says, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created for him, by him and for him. And then in chapter uh, John, chapter one, 
John chapter one, verse one. Maybe you're familiar with this. You'll see how this kind of ties in. It says, in the beginning, all the way back from Genesis one, right? Genesis one, one. But John chapter one, in the beginning was the word. The word there is logos, the, the great embodied sense of initial cause of the world, that force and power in which the Greeks thought began all things, that logos, that word is now Jesus Christ as he uses that word to communicate who Jesus is and he says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness shall not overcome it. Then you were to flip over to the little epistle of 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. 1 John chapter 1, you'll notice some similarities. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. So this grandiose, massive thing, this big thing, is now something tangible and physical and visible. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father that was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And then the little book of uh, Hebrews, maybe not little in any stretch of the imagination, the book of Hebrews chapter one verse one. Hebrews chapter one, verse one, it says, again in a similar way, long ago, long ago, in the beginning, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus is the, get this phrase, the exact imprint of his nature. And he does what? This exact imprint of his nature does what? He upholds the universe by a word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Verse four says, having become much superior or paramount, or as Colossians says, preeminent, superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is much more excellent than theirs. And then we go back to the book of Colossians, Colossians 1 verse 15. I'm gonna read it through one last time and then we're gonna run through this passage, okay? Go to Colossians chapter one, verse 15. And I am reading this, you know, again, we've looked at it through a video, but I want, us to, I want it to seep in. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Verse 17 says, and he is before all things. And in him all things consist or hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. I love this. 
making peace by the blood of his cross. And then it goes from Jesus and points a finger at you. And what does it say in verse 21? And you. Oh, what about me? Well, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, right? He was, uh, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present, here it is again, you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Wow, what a transference that has been. Verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Wow, okay, there's a lot there, an amazing passage. And maybe you're starting to just get a sense of this. This passage in Colossians here is a a beautiful passage. In a sense, it is actually thought as by many theologians and commentators that this passage, the first part, verses 15 through 20, are actually an ancient Christian hymn, words that would have been sung by the early Christian church. And so there's a possibility it originated there with Paul, or Paul is kind of quoting parts of it within here. Uh, But either way, it is definitely poetic. Even the way it's written in the Greek is done in a certain way where it kind of begins with and he is and and he is and and he is. There's a certain poetic structure to the passage and some would even call it a creed. It's known as the Colossian Creed. You know, we know and we study, in fact, in my ninth grade class, we're studying word by word, line by line, the Apostles' Creed, what it is that we believe. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. That's the very first line of the Apostles' Creed. You familiar with that? The very first line, I think, is really sourced here from this passage. And then again, again, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, and all of these things, right? I believe in. And so there's this creed, for we are, as a church, a confessional people. We proclaim our faith. We've sang it today. We've sung it out loud. The faith that we have, we proclaim our belief. We are a public, uh, physical, and visible gathering of people. And our central figure in this church, highlighted by this cross behind me, is Jesus is central. Jesus is the center of our faith. And why is that? Well, Jesus makes the invisible visible. Look at that first verse, verse 15. Look at this verse 15. It is, uh, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. This verse I, I have trouble with because it is so deep and complicated and as I'm going to mention, there are some heretical landmines that I'm going to try to be avoiding in this passage, right? And I'll explain that to you as to why. The image, this word image is very important. It's actually a very simple word. It's a word you're very familiar with. Uh, it's actually in the Greek, the word icon. Icon, E-I-K-O-N, icon, this idea or icon, I-C-O-N, as you're known for a desktop icon. Double click and the icon opens up. Or for you Gen Zers, it's an app on your phone that you tap with a finger and opens the application. For the icon is a visible representation of a much larger program that exists behind that little physical object. That app that sits there on your phone, that touch of a button, you represent, that little little square represents the whole of what is underneath it. But without that app, without that visible representation, you could not access what is and what lies beneath in that application. You could not open up you're whatever it is, <laughs> you know, to see the Patriots score, okay, right? So without that visible application, without that icon, you could not understand or grasp what lies beneath the surface. 
And in some manner, in some way, that's kind of what we're saying about Jesus here, that he is ultimately this visible icon. He is the physical and tangible image of the invisible God. Rand Hummel, uh, one of my mentors, writes in his book on Colossians, he says that Jesus Christ is the visible icon of the invisible God. God is invisible. According to the Bible, no one has seen God at any time. John 1.18 says in the NLT, no one has ever seen God, but the unique one who is himself God is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. Some have seen glimpses of his glory and others have witnessed his presence in a cloud or a flame in the Old Testament. But no man has seen God. And this is at times hard for us in our physical existence to understand. First Timothy 1 Timothy 1.17 actually says, the king of the ages, the immortal, you know the verse? The immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. Or there's a famous hymn, the immortal, invisible, God only wise. So we learn that the only way here to know God and to see God in its fullest way is to know and see the visible image of the invisible God, which is Jesus himself. I mentioned Thomas earlier. Thomas and Philip in John chapter 14, maybe you're familiar with this conversation they were having. Uh, They were starting to ask questions of Jesus, for Jesus is starting to reveal to them that he is gonna be going away. And yet how is it that they are to know what it is that they seem to know? They start asking epistemological questions and theological questions and they start inquiring and Jesus says, and Philip says, and Thomas, they're like, how do we know the way? And Jesus then says the very famous phrase, I am the way, the truth, and the life. They ask questions, well, well, what what is it that we will know that, that this is the truth? How is it that we will know where life is? How is it that we will know the Father? What does Jesus answer to them? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you know me, you know the Father. That is blasphemy, unless it's true. (laughs) And isn't that why they tried killing Jesus so often, or why they literally tried hucking him off a cliff, because he said such bold statements, that for any other person to say such a thing, it would be blasphemous and heresy. But, because it was Jesus, the Messiah, God in flesh, we have this beautiful depiction of the truth of God. And I mentioned earlier that these tend to be, at times, if we don't read on and place it in their context, that these will be heretical landmines that you'll step on, and that people are trying to do. Because if Jesus is only just an image of God, if he is just a mere created being, or only a picture of God, or a phantom ghost-like spirit being, if he is not actually physically in the flesh and actually physically God, then we have a totally different gospel message, don't we? Is Jesus created? Does he have a beginning? Is Jesus, as some people would say, Jesus is a mere angel, a messenger from God, sent by him. I think we commit ultimately what is known as Trinitarian heresy when we encounter things like this and we demote Jesus and put him on a pedestal that we can better grasp and understand. In fact, various uh, religious organizations are often trying to do this and this verse is at the center of controversy even from the beginning of the church until now. This verse is so important and yet is often a verse that is so distorted because I believe it is so central. 
Other groups might use this word icon or image and use it to describe a certain method or way of achieving uh, ways to God, uh, prayer to God as we pray through icons or images, venerating saints to be prayed toward. And this is, in my very Protestant opinion, I'm just saying a very dangerous practice and I would be careful with these things. Even in the Hebrew and Mosaic law in the Old Testament, image making, idol making was often forbidden. Thou shalt have no graven images. Even in the design of the tabernacle and the temple, no images of God were ever placed on any of the reliefs that were made there. Only garden imagery, pomegranates and trees and plants were placed because God knew that we have a tendency to worship images and idols over the source and the original that we have a tendency to worship the creation over the creator. We, as Romans 1.20 said, as it ties in here, that we have a tendency to exchange the paramount glory of God for tangible things of self-made images that we like to worship. Romans 1 verse 20 says, for his invisible attributes, there it is again, the visible and invisible, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made so that they who are without God are without excuse. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And what did they do, get this, exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. If Jesus is to be central, then we must make him the central and only image of God. For he is to be paramount in our worship and our faith. And so anytime I believe that we substitute created images for Jesus, we are removing image of Jesus as the center of our faith and manufacturing lesser and incomplete depictions and at times bold, outright, irreverent avenues to God. And so Jesus, I think, is central to this. He ought to be the image. He images God unlike anything else can. Why? Because he is God. And he is the light by which we see God. He is worthy of our attention, and that is what Paul is beginning with, that he is the visible icon image of the invisible God, and then it says, a challenging phrase, it says he is, what? The firstborn of all creation. Again, another one, be careful how you step on this one, right? For this word firstborn, does that mean Jesus had a beginning? Well, he certainly was born. That mean he was created at that point. Is Jesus born, is he created, does he have a beginning? Like I've said, these challenging uh, major religions that you're gonna encounter all the time, they come to your doorstep, they've come to mine, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormonism, they would often take this verse and this whole passage and interpret it completely differently, attempting to make Jesus into a created being, as they would say. That Jehovah God is one, but Jesus is a spirit. Jesus is really created by God, or they would say he is the first of the creation or created order. Or as others would say that Jesus, uh, Mormonism I believe teaches that Jesus is Lucifer's spirit brother. He is not God, but he was an exalted man who eventually attained divine status. And if we can be like Jesus, we too can attain divine status and one day receive a planet to ourselves and be gods ourselves. And so this verse and this passage is used often to, to demote Jesus from the all created beginning of all things and to create him to something more attainable that we can control and render for ourselves. 
So be careful of this passage in this sense. So what exactly does firstborn mean, Jordan, if you're talking about all these other things? Well, in one commentary it says that Paul had in mind, what he had in mind with this word firstborn was the rights and the privileges of a firstborn son especially the son of a monarch or a king who would inherit ruling sovereignty from the king, his father. Hebrews 1, 2, we read it earlier. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, Jesus, whom he has appointed the heir of all things. You get that, the heir. He is the one who receives the inheritance from God of all things. He is the one, the primogeniture, the, the firstborn, as the firstborn inherits from the father in this culture, uh, kind of the rights, the authority, the privileges of the father. Therefore, if the, wherever the son is, the father is, for they inherit the authority. So what Paul's trying to communicate to us that Jesus is this visible image whereby we know the invisible God and we can trust him because he's the firstborn of all creation for he was there in the beginning and in him he has the power of all the father that all the father has. He is Lord of creation, and we ought to worship him as such. So that is our kind of third point, that Jesus is the Lord of creation. And I think what we'll see now as we run through these last couple of verses, really the whole rest of the passage, is this sense that Jesus is Lord of the first creation. But what's really neat for us here today is Jesus is Lord of the church, meaning he is Lord of the new creation. You're a new creation in Christ. Jesus is Lord of the first and Lord of the new as well. And so that we're gonna see that kind of unfold. All right, so Jesus is Lord of the creation. What does it say in the next verses? We're gonna go through this quickly. It says, for by him all things were created. In heaven and earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. He's just saying, look, everything. Your, your governments, the states, powers, the authorities that be, the authorities that you see and the authorities you can't see, God is in control and over them all. That's very comforting. (laughs) That's very comforting that all things, he is before all things, all by him all things are created. And then it says, what does it say? All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. You see these verses, through Jesus it was all created and they were created that he would be the end purpose of their creation. That he is, it is for him and through him and by him and he was before it all began. What does Jesus say? I believe it's in John. He says, um, I can't remember, it's towards the beginning, but he says, before Abraham was, what does he say? Do you know that? I am. That's a doozy. (laughs) So you're saying to a Jewish audience, before Father Abraham, the beginning source of our entire nation and being, before Abraham you were, excuse me, sir. Jesus is saying, before Abraham, I am. And not only does he say, I am, but he references the very name of God, Yahweh. I am that I am. How is it that Jesus could communicate who he is? The chief means and way that Jesus uses to communicate who he is and God communicates who he is to Moses in the burning bush is I am that I am by using a word of transcendence that I am wholly other. There is nothing like me. I am above and beyond. And we're gonna get into that point here in a moment. But before we do, I wanna look at verse 17. It says, he is before all things and by him, I love this, all things hold together. 
that dark matter out there that supposedly is holding all things together, whether it exists or not, who knows? But the concept that all of the universes, all of them spinning and revolving, all of that, the very atoms within my body, the very power of the photons and neutrons that are spinning around, and the reason everything is not exploding into chaos is because God holds it in his hand through the power of Jesus Christ. I like sports and in soccer there's a term for a central midfielder called a holding midfielder. One of the most famous ones, his name was Andrea Pirlo. He was an Italian player and his, his nickname was the metronome. Wow, I thought that worked a lot better on the mic than I thought it would. He was a metronome, you know? you remember that forever. This idea of the metronome is that he often wasn't maybe visibly seen in everything that was happening, and very rarely did he ever score goals, but you take him out of the, f- the team, and the team doesn't know what to do. He's the central figure, he's dictating play, he's conducting it from the behind the scenes, he's initiating runs this direction, and then there are those high-flying soccer players scoring the goals and celebrating, and Andrea Pirlo just walks in and congratulates him. But it all began with him. Take him out, and everything falls apart. You could say like a quarterback on a football field, and you're like, there's my sport, sir. All right, well, football, you got the quarterback right there. Without the quarterback, everything falls apart. Nobody knows where they're supposed to go, what they're supposed to do, how it's supposed to run, but you put the quarterback in there, and all of a sudden, everybody's running the right routes and the ball's moving the way it's supposed to move. Jesus is central to all things. He holds it all together. Apart from him, everything falls apart, both internally in our own lives and the entire nature of all things in all of the universe. Jesus holds all things together. As I heard Matt Chandler say the other day, God is both infinitely powerful and intimately personal. Infinitely powerful. And yet, the striking thing about it is we worship a God who is intimately personal. He knows you and he cares about you. This powerful God took on flesh in the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of man. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Are you kidding me? How is this possible? All things are created in him and through him and for him. Jesus speaks to the blind and makes them see, and yet at the same time, he holds together the concept of the very existence of vision itself. He restores a lame man to walk, and as well has, was the one who created the human body in the first place. The God-man, son of man, Jesus Christ, our savior, our man representative. He represents humanity in both 100% God and 100% man. And, and kinda as we close, as I bring some of these concepts to make sense here, and we're gonna bring in the idea of reconciliation. I wanna give you two concepts that I think help us see this important reason of Jesus being outside and all-powerful over all things, yet also intimately personal. So throughout history, there have been different ways of looking at the world. One of the ways is a mythological worldview. I went to the booth and put that up. What we have often is when in the history and especially in the Greek context in which this was written, you often had different religions throughout the ancient times that would view the gods and man and nature on the same level playing field. That everything the gods did was, was often uh, it, it was interacting with what man did and interacted what, with what nature did. So if, if man was doing something wrong and, and there was a drought, then we, we have to conjure nature and do a rain dance in order to please the rain gods, for we're all connected in one giant circle. For ultimately, the gods, man, and nature are all part of the created order. And this was the way virtually every religion and every history of religion begins in this concept of a mythological worldview that we are all in the same plane. 
and we all are connected. My actions affect God. The gods affect nature, and nature affects me. There is an interaction, but you see in the Old Testament, there's a biblical worldview that stands in stark contrast to this, and that is the biblical worldview. The biblical worldview stands that man and creation and nature are created, and God exists outside of it all. He is holy other. We worship God as holy, holy, holy. God is different and separated beyond outside of space and time, for he initiated and created it all. God is not like you and me or the created order. He exists outside of all of it. And that is very important for God in his wisdom has chosen to interact with all of these things, nature and man, and has chosen in the most dramatic way to incarnate himself in human form, take on the form of a human. And this way that we see and interact with God in this way as he exists outside is that he, we see through the person of Jesus is the one who is chief and Lord and King, the visible manner in which we see God interact with us here on earth, man and nature. So Jesus is paramount to all things because he represents perfectly as the head of the church, as the head of nature, as the head of man, as powerful over it all. He is also our creator, yes, he is also our redeemer. I want you to look, maybe on the screen they can put this verse in verse 20. Verse 20, they can put that on there as we kind of bring this to a close. That Jesus is Lord of creation, but that also makes him Lord of redemption, the Lord of the new creation. For it is by his grand power that he also chooses to come and save mankind on our own. Lord of the first creation, Lord of the new creation. It says in verse 19 that he, um, that he is also, he is, uh, verse 18, that he is the head of the body, the church, the beginning and the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Verse 19, for in him all fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He is paramount above it all, and God dwells with him. And through him, look at verse 20, through him, so through all of that power that we've been building up, through that God who is far outside space, time, and matter, as he exists outside of it all, through him, he does what? Verse 20, through him to reconcile to himself what? All things. So he, he made all things, he's powerful all things, he controls all things, and yet through him, he reconciles all things. That means he reconciles you and me, whether on earth, in heaven, and he makes peace with all things through his blood on the cross. Do you see how this ties together? It's incredible. Jesus, creator of all things, before all things, all things are for him, all things hold together by him, yet Jesus reconciles all things through his own bodily death and resurrection. Jesus is the reconciler. In the verse 21, we have a problem though because in verse 21, it says that we were alienated, hostile in mind, evil deeds, meaning we weren't reconciling this on our own terms. You could not save yourself. You were alienated, hostile, doing evil deeds. We needed a savior. We couldn't save ourselves. We couldn't reconcile ourselves. We are sinners. We are not God. We are created. God exists outside. But wait, a beautiful conclusion, a beautiful solution. Colossians 1, verse 22. He, 
Jesus has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. What? This, I, I'm trying to, you know, you guys excited about this? Jesus has now reconciled us by his reconcilable body. We couldn't sacrifice our own sinful souls on behalf of humanity, we could not. So the reason we make such a fuss about the fact that Jesus is not a created being and that Jesus is God in the flesh, that he is in the hypostatic union, 100% man and 100% God, the reason this is such a big deal and the reason why Satan is constantly trying to distort this doctrine is because salvation is simply not possible without Jesus being the agent to reconcile both parties, God and man. 1 Timothy 2.5 in the New Living Translation says, for there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity. The man, Christ Jesus. One, one man. A wrong has been done Two sides need to come together and make peace. God himself makes the peace. He upholds both sides of the covenant. He sends Jesus, who is God, who is outside of creation, to enter creation and save the world by offering himself and his blood so our blood would not have to be shed. That is an incredible truth, an incredible power. And if Jesus is not God, and he cannot save us. But now, because he is both God and both the Son of Man, my representative, and I believe in him, the Bible says I'm justified. In this passage it says I am made holy. In this passage it says I am blameless. And now I am above reproach in God's eyes. All because God has sent Jesus to make peace by the blood of the cross. And so now, knowing this, Paul convinces you and challenges you of the truth, but challenges you in verse 23 to continue in this. In verse 23, he says, be stable in this. Be, be steadfast in this. Do not waver. Be firm stable, steadfast. Do not shift from this truth. Don't let anyone add to Jesus, Jesus plus nothing. You start adding to Jesus, you start taking away from Jesus and we have distorted what God has laid up for us and the very nature of salvation. Jesus is central. Do not shift from this, continue in this faith for Jesus is paramount above all things. Let us as a church worship him as such. And in a moment, as I pray, we are going to come before this table and we are going to worship Jesus Christ as we encounter communion and we encounter the visible image of Jesus Christ before us. His body was given for us, his blood was shed for us, and it is by this participation physically in this today that we respond, confess outwardly together that we believe in Jesus and that he is Lord of creation, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation and by him all things hold together. And we do that as a church, as a people, physically together, as a group, the family of God who have been made holy, who have been made blameless and above reproach in his sight. We praise him for that. Let us close in prayer. Father, we thank you 
and we praise you, Lord. You are good, even, Lord, when we forget. Teach us to remember who you are and to be thankful for who you are and to praise you, God, even in the ways that we sometimes don't understand as we grasp the grand nature of who you are. But God, thank you for making yourself visible to us so that we, human beings, could see and know and we could follow you. Thank you, God, for these things. Lord, be with us even in this communion as you are present among us here. As we participate in this, Lord, as we try to force ourselves in some ways to focus on the worship that is before us as we close in communion and then after, Lord, as we finally sing a final song of praise and worship to who you are as Jesus. God, we thank you for these truths. We thank you for all that you have done. And we praise you, God, for this in Jesus' name. Amen.